Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The COVID pandemic has called attention to the United States' reliance on a supply chain that makes access to critical medicines dependent on the ability to make them overseas and ship them in a timely manner. At the same time, harnessing new ways of making biologics is making it possible to gain significant savings over traditional manufacturing approaches. Our bio is betting it will be able to cost-effectively produce biologics in the United States, and it's starting with insulin to prove its point. We spoke to Cameron Owen, co-founder of R-Bio, about how the company is engineering different organisms to increase the efficiency of biomanufacturing, why it's starting with insulin, and why reshoring biomanufacturing should be viewed as a critical issue for the United States. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to talk about biomanufacturing, our bio, and the company's efforts to improve manufacturing efficiency. One of the things from covering this industry that has always puzzled me is why there's so much focus on innovation in terms of the discovery and development of therapeutics, in the modality of therapeutics, but there seems to be very little focus that least in the public eye, on innovation with regards to manufacturing. Why do you think that is? Yeah, uh, great question. I think for a couple of reasons. You know, I'd, I'd argue that the, the most recent innovation, quote unquote, in, in manufacturing, especially in pharmaceuticals, uh, other areas as well, uh, was was really cheap labor and being able to to move it offshore. So companies that were based here in the United States could uh, who had already had their protocols and procedures perfected could move their operations offshore and and the cost of labor was was a little bit lower than than what it is here, which obviously worked to the benefit of the company because uh, it helped them to increase their margins. So that's I would say that's, that's point number one. Uh, point number two, and this may actually be the more important one, is is the discovery and development of of new therapeutics can certainly be a high uh, highly profitable game. 
you know, there's there's certainly high risks associated there as well uh, and some regulatory hoops to jump through. But if you can make it to the other side and you've got a good product, uh, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, that product that could net you billions, you know, uh, manufacturing of that therapeutic or that compound or that drug, whatever, whatever product that you have there. Uh, may not be nearly as critically important um, because the volumes with which you would need to manufacture that uh, may actually not be that high. Uh, and 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 to to look at something like insulin, uh, that's that's really the opposite. You know, with a with a drug like insulin or, or other critical drugs as well, uh, you're starting to see some problems in in the volume and being able to manufacture really really high amounts. One of the opportunities you see for our bio is helping to reshore the manufacturing of critical drugs to the United States. How did the COVID-19 epidemic call attention to this potential problem? And why should people be concerned even as the pandemic recedes? Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, I could probably talk all day about the the ins and outs of of needing to have these supply chains, especially pharmaceutical supply chains uh, back here on domestic soil. Um, but I'll, I'll just go to the, the high level points. I mean, you really can't even turn on the news or, or skim social media today without seeing something about supply chain issues. Uh, I'll actually refer to an article I read in the New York Times just a couple of, of months ago. I think it was in September uh, said that of the top 100 pharmaceuticals that are used here in the United States, uh, we have no domestic footprint there. So, I mean, I want you to think about that for a second. You know, 83 out of 100, you know, that's that's not just a supply chain issue. Uh, that's a national security issue. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people recognize that prior to, you know, earlier March of, of 2020. Uh, but I think they certainly do now. There are 30 million Americans with diabetes, 7.4 million of whom use one or more formulations of insulin. There are three companies that supply the U.S. market. The price, though, has been steadily rising. Why is that? Well, probably, honestly, a couple of reasons. You know, for starters, I would say, you know, looking at, you know, Economics 101, supply and demand. If you've got three suppliers, uh, to your point, uh, and the demand is increasing on more of an exponential curve versus a, a, a linearly curve, then, then you certainly have some uh, some basic economics there. So that, that would be part number one. Uh, part number two uh, is, is really due to the fact that there's been a lot of advances in the types of insulin on the market. You know, it's, it's not just a, a, a single product. You know, you, have, you could have fast acting insulin, slow acting insulin, insulin that's more shelf stable. Uh, and each time a company wants to brand and release a new version like that, they've got to conduct some clinical trials around that. And and I think, you know, you and your listeners could probably appreciate the fact that those could be uh, very expensive. And and ultimately, that cost is going to get passed on to the to the consumers uh, in order to recoup that type of uh, investment that they had to initially make. So, I think when most people think of of rising costs. Uh, I, I believe that the latter part of part two is probably why uh, there's, you're more likely to see those those types of increases. But you know, I, both both factors do do come into play for sure. Why has our bio decided to start with insulin as its first product? What's the opportunity? You know, for us, the way we see it internally, uh, the opportunity is is pretty massive. You know, the, the demand for insulin here in the United States is 
growing at a rate of around 16,000 kilograms per year. So to put that into a little bit of context, uh, the the full-sized yellow school buses that you know we all used to ride going to elementary and middle school back back in the day, uh, a full-sized bus like that weighs about 16,000 kilograms. So that's a that's a massive weight of of product that uh, that is being being demanded. Uh, and if and if you assume a wholesale price of probably somewhere around 20 20 cents per milligram, and, and honestly that's probably more on the low end. Uh, you know, 16,000 kilos at 20 cents a, a milligram, you're, you're looking at a quarter of a billion dollars worth of uh, insulin product that is being demanded or growing anyways here in the United States. And, and that's just, you know, that's just domestically. We're not even looking at um, at international number numbers. So if, if you look at a, a molecule like insulin, you know, that's a that's a complex biological molecule. Uh, you know, so to be able to quickly manufacture and scale to that size is not easy. And, it, you know, no matter who you are. Uh, how is insulin manufactured today? Is it a fairly traditional recombinant product? Yes, yes. So very, very early on, you, you could uh, harvest insulin from animal sources. You know, you go to slaughter a pig, you go to slaughter a cow, you can you can harvest uh, insulin from uh, from there. Now in the I would say early 80s, or at least just the 80s in general, uh, recombinant technologies really started to uh, emerge onto the forefront, and and that's how it's it, it started to be made and is is being made today. Uh, the the demand that that we're seeing uh, and just the scale at which it is, there's no way that we would have been able to keep up with the traditional animal sources. So you know, recombinant technologies really paved the path for being able to to keep up with with what's happened over the last couple of decades. And, and what kind of cells are generally used to to grow the insulin? You know, it, it really depends. Um, you know, you're certainly looking at, at single celled organisms. You could, in a traditional recombinant way, you could either use a prokaryotic or eukaryotic vector. Uh, you know, prokaryotes would be like a bacteria, like an E. coli, eukaryote, something like like a yeast. Uh, either either of those vector systems could be used, and, and there's certainly pros and cons of each. Uh, it just depends on how you, as a company or you, as a manufacturer, want to want to set up your operations. Our bio is exploring a variety of organisms to manufacture biologics as well as synthetic bacteria. Do you know yet what you expect to use to manufacture insulin with? Great question. Great question. Uh, for us, we're, we're looking at both and coming to that determination. Uh, so earlier this year, we got into a partnership with Washington University to test you know, several different models, not just, not just one or the other. Um, and, and obviously scaling, as I mentioned, is, is going to be uh, a big, a big challenge there. Um, you know, I, I've been privy to seeing the early data that, that's come through and I have a good idea in my mind of, of what's going to be best. Uh, but, but that study is going to be wrapping up, you know, later this month. Uh, and we, and we're not, we as a company are not going to make our final decision of, of what we want to use and what we want to scale with until all that data has been finalized and analyzed and, and looked over once, twice, three times, and make sure we're we're making that next step the, the way that we need to. What's the potential, though, to gain efficiency and increase productivity by altering the cells that are used? Sure, sure. Well, I would say that would be actually what our competitive 
uh, advantages. You know, recombinant DNA at a, at a very simple, and this is a gross oversimplification, is really just a, a cut and paste type of activity. You know, you cut cut the human gene uh, and paste it into a bacterial plasmid, for example, uh, invoke that bacteria to to produce that and express that foreign gene that it has, and that's how you're able to get um, to get that insulin. You know, for us, where where we come in is is being able to apply what we already know about recombinant technologies, mix it with a lot of this data uh, experiments and knowledge that's come out over the past several years as it relates to synthetic biology, uh, you could you can work to significantly increase the the yields of any type of product that you're looking at. Obviously, we've been talking about insulin here. So if you could come back and say, hey, using this model, you can produce 100%, 200% or more uh, on your volumes that, that you can create. Uh, that's really the next the the next step forward and the next really evolution of manufacturing of of not just insulin but all sorts of biological products as well. And do you do that by by rebuilding the organism so that it's it's in essence created as as a real manufacturing machine as opposed to doing other functions? Yes, yes. So I like to think uh, and say that that biology is the most powerful technology that's ever been invented. And and for the past several decades, you know, we've been figuring out what's there, you know, what Mother Nature already put together. Um, But we're now at the point where we can begin to manipulate that uh, and do things to it that we weren't haven't weren't and haven't been able uh, to do before. So I like to think of the cell lines and the quote bugs that, that we've created. Uh, really as a type of miniature factory uh, as opposed to your traditional uh, single-celled organism. Uh, so give me a, a sense of the, the type of alterations you'd make. Are, are, is it to eliminate or is it to add or is it to do both? Uh, you know, honestly, it, it could be – it's really a mixture of, of two things. One, you know, if you're going to insert that foreign gene, you want to make sure that that your organism is expressing it. So the the things that – that you write into the the microbe in order to get that microbe to overexpress your your protein of interest is one thing certainly two you know you'd want to remove what I'll call your some of your traditional metabolic functions um, if you think about it from like a chemistry analogy you know you're removing a lot of side reactions that you don't that you don't want to happen because you really just don't care about it right you want these you want these microbes to, to be doing two things, one, growing and dividing, and two, producing your, your molecule of interest. Anything else outside of that is really just kind of wasted energy, if that makes sense. And ultimately, how, how much do you expect to be able to reduce the cost of goods in producing something like insulin? Now that's the that's a million or, or billion dollar question. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's ask this. What what is the what is the amount you need to to make it viable? Sure, sure. I, I would say you know on this next step for us, I'm, I'm not going to throw out too much of of what we've seen in the early data. Uh, we will be doing a, a release around that, you know. But if you can come out and say, for example, that you can manufacture to insulin yields at 100 percent of what is is currently available you know you you've doubled the amount of yields that's that's possible by using a lot of the same type of uh same type of manufacturing processes that 
that already exist and are already on, on the market. You're just simply making more. Um, you know, I, <laughs> this, this may be silly, but one of my favorite shows is a show called Gold Rush. And uh, it's, it follows some people up in Alaska and, and they mine gold. You know, they got to they gotta tear up the ground and then they got to fil- filter it out. You know, if, if, if the ground itself has twice as much gold as this ground over here, you want to be mining the one that's going to net you the most amount of product. So uh, even though the the two industries are very different uh, from from that perspective, they're they're right on point. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting analogy. I, I wonder in designing an organism for production, are you able to create any efficiency by having less material to filter out of the end product? You know, that's that is uh, an interesting interesting question. You know, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times that our our yields could be significantly higher, but on the on the back end, if you're not able to uh, filter that out efficiently and are losing product down the stretch, uh, you know, you may actually not be better than than what's there. So obviously, for us, we're taking great care to make sure that you know, for every every insulin molecule that we can make, we want to make sure that we capture that and that doesn't get lost. Uh, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, especially if that baby is is highly valuable to to you as a company. And and is the business plan here to actually create manufacturing facilities, or is it just to create the feedstock that'll be used by a, a contract manufacturer? Uh, no, we want to be uh, the the manufacturer itself. So we want to be the one uh, producing producing that product. Um, now you mentioned contract manufacturing. I think that's a good place for for us to start. Uh, there's certainly some regulatory uh, hoops to jump through, and an easy way to start is to you know contract manufacture it for a firm that already has those regulations and and already is is doing that. Um, and I I think that'll probably lead to maybe a another question about biosimilars or or things of that nature. But initially, a good place to launch is is through contract manufacturing. Well, how's the company financed today, and what will it take to stand up a manufacturing facility? Sure, sure. Um, you know, to date, we are privately financed, so everything that we've we've been doing is, has come in from uh, private investment. Uh, Post study, certainly looking at at, a, at finalizing a much larger uh, investment. There's no question uh, about that as as we look to scale. It really, to answer your question, it really just depends on the size of the quote, you know, factory farm that that you're looking to construct, you know, the models that we have can, can scale to, to any size. Uh, It's just the, the matter, the size of the facility and then what's, what's available. Um, But very, but to, to come now full circle and really answer your question uh, to set up a, a factory floor like that, that's able to, you know, be, be relatively profitable with, with a head count of 20 to 20 to 30 people. I, it's really not going to take any less than, than 20 million. And what's the timing for producing insulin from, um, from a regulatory perspective, would this be treated as a biosimilar? So not initially, uh, but it, it, that would certainly be a future goal uh, of the company. You know, I mentioned contract manufacturing the, the best way, just given the demand that's there, you know, it's there and you know, it's a necessary product. Uh, so you're really doing more of a commodity manufacturing. Uh, you would look to to wholesale that to uh, another firm that has already gone through the process of getting those regulatory uh, applications and and doing the, the the marketing and the sales and all of those things. Who would then just white label your product? Uh, now, biosimilar 
yes, uh, and looking to become a brand later, absolutely. Uh, and, but in order to do that, you have to do some uh, comparison studies, and and those are are certainly not cheap in and of in and of it th- themselves. There is a growing list of biologics that have lost patent protection. What other candidates are you looking at? Yes, yes. So to your point, you know, there's there's many potentially lucrative candidates uh, that we've been looking at uh, over the past couple of years. We've seen some really uh, exciting biological molecules come off patent that have high uh, that have high demands. Um, to answer your question of what other candidates are we looking at, that one I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my cards uh, a little closer to to the chest. Um, you know, I'll come back to what I mentioned earlier of the fact that of the top 100 uh, pharmaceutical compounds that are being used in the United States today, uh, only 83 of them have a have a domestic footprint. So there's there's a whole host of compounds that that you could look to manufacture here domestically that that have a a high demand for. One of the things that I think has been surprising for some people is how slowly the U.S. market for biosimilars has evolved. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Yeah, plain and simple, probably just clinical trials. Uh, You know, those are uh, expensive. Uh, They they take uh, time to complete. Uh, and, And generally speaking, oftentimes they can have a lower chance of success. So there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say necessarily issues, but there's certainly a lot of challenges uh, associated with, with, with biosimilars. Now, there are a lot of opportunities in that, in that biosimilar space, um, but you know, it is a big investment. Uh, you got to be brave and bold when you, when you uh, do something like that. And uh, I, that, to me, I think that's probably the main reason why we haven't seen a lot of uh, of that market that's a little slow to develop, like you said. Well, do you think that speaks to a, a need to the FDA to rethink its approach to biosimilars? Me personally, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think there are certainly some regulatory headaches that uh, that I don't want to say get in the way um, because it is necessary. There, regulations and regulating the space certainly is necessary, uh, but I think to to some extent, uh, some of those hoops don't need to be as high to jump through as as they are right now but that's just that's just a personal opinion of mine and and just to spell out i i take it the problem with biosimilars and why they're called biosimilars as opposed to generics is because they're not identical copies there's not a a chemical uh, equivalency you can show without actually testing the safety and efficacy of of the substance Yep, absolutely. Because the FDA is really only concerned about one thing. You know, they don't care how long it takes for you to develop that data. They don't care how much it costs for you to develop that data. They're not interested in that. They're only interested in making sure that it's safe and uh, efficacy, and then you have to go uh, the rest of the way from there. That's just that's just the hoop you got to jump through with the FDA. You didn't want to get into specific names of potential targets you might go after, but what would make a good candidate for our bio? What what are the qualities you would look for? Sure, uh, certainly a, a demand and a need for it. Uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, you need to have people that use it. You could manufacture compound X all day, but if compound X doesn't have a big market and there's not a huge need for it, uh, then you you know, you as a business, you certainly don't want to. Uh, you don't want to invest a lot of time, energy, and effort into it. Uh, I'll actually make uh, an an analogy. You know, if we as a company would have been 
uh, a mature and and a little bit bigger than what we are right now. You know, last year, early last year, when all of a sudden the demand for a biological product such as the spike protein on on uh, the coronavirus, you know, every vaccine maker, every research institute, every academia, all of a sudden shifted their focus on wanting to be doing this type of research in order to you know contribute to the the common good and and boost that knowledge. Uh, but the ability to manufacture a, a compound like that quickly and, and, and pivot that way was incredibly slow. Uh, and, and to get your hands on some of some of that protein, uh, you know, I would assume that it was probably going at the at the rate probably more expensive than gold. Um, you know, so for us, if if we have that type of manufacturing capability and we can quickly pivot there. Uh, I think that that's a good analogy of, of an, another good candidate that our bio could pursue. I mean, any sort of biological products, things come, things go. There's, there's cyclical, you know, people all of a sudden want to do research on this. Now they don't. Ten years later, now we're on something else. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty dynamic market. I think the other issue with biosimilars is the disappointing savings they've created uh, something on the order of about 20% compared to the Innovator product. Why don't we see bigger discounts on these substances? And is there an opportunity for our bio to really move the needle on that through manufacturing efficiency? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. So uh, last month I attended the Assembia Specialty Pharmacy Conference. So I'll just do a little shout out to them. It was a great conference uh, in Las Vegas. And, and I remember there's, there's two statistics that I wrote down because I thought they were so powerful. And the first one was that non-specialty pharmacy, or what most people consider generics, accounts for 70% of total patients uh, that, that need or use those types of drugs. But of that market, only account for 4% of total pharmaceutical spend. So to me, that's, that says a couple things. Uh, that, to me, it says that the majority of these patients could be on some form of, of a generic or biosimilar drug that are currently taking a, a highly specialized product that they probably don't need. And, and so if, if you're looking at those types of numbers, I mean, that's just a huge, a huge disconnect. You know, you can understand why that's the case. These pharmaceutical companies are, are putting in a lot of R&D and efforts into making new and better drugs. So when they, when they release, they want, uh, they want patients taking those specialty drugs uh, they certainly don't want them to take the generic drugs that that, that undercuts them just simply on price. Um, but if if seventy percent of all patients are 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 accounting for these these generics, that there's a a huge and massive market for that. Cameron Owen, co-founder of Arbio. Cameron, thanks so much for your time today. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed my time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.